0: As you could tell, I am neither Brian nor Steve, so in the event that this kind of feels like the end of the roster JV today, uh, I apologize. But we'll persevere through it, and I'll be better people for it. Um, And if you are visiting today, welcome. And in the event that this whole thing goes sideways, just know these are good people and uh, come back. So... um, we are going to be looking at the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel um, for both our gospel reading and our sermon. Um, and I chose this one because the last time I uh, offered to preach for someone and said, hey, how can I fill in for you? The first time they said, well, can you come in and preach on sex? And then the second time they said, well, can you come in and do a two-week series on giving? Um, And the last thing I wanted to do was come in here and be bad cop again. So I figured, well, look at Jesus. Um, So the gospel reading comes from Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. Listen, this is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know of this. And he told them to give her something to eat. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text that we are going to consider today that you have given it to us for our edification, for your glory, and that we could be transformed by these truths, by this story, this vignette we see in the life of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will quiet our hearts, soften them, sharpen our minds, and tune them to you and to your word, that we could be restored and transformed by this truth, by this story, and by the personal work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now... Most people, Christians and non-Christians, know the story about the fall, about Adam and Eve, their disobedience, the eating of the fruit. Um, Yet so many times we really gloss over the implications of that story, what it really means. Because what they had in the garden was something beautiful, described as shalom, that word about peace. But it's not just peace in the sense of just the absence of violence or the absence of strife but it's rather this abundance of harmony and flourishing relationally between us and God, relationships between man and woman, relationships between us and nature. And what happened in the fall is that all of those relationships got broken, that even though we still live in this beautiful but broken world, relationally, things are very broken between each other and our relationships, with us and God, with the way we steward, abuse, exploit creation even, that the implications of the fall really do go beyond just us. And what I like about what Mark is doing in this section of the gospel is he's sort of surveying the brokenness of this world. You see, at the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus calming the storm that terrifies even the most seasoned fishermen. Following that, we see Jesus interacting, healing, and restoring this man oppressed by demons. And now what we're considering today is this text in which there is this woman who is suffering with chronic illness and then this little girl who dies. And it's sort of interesting as he's moving over these four scenes. He's moving from the brokenness of this world that affect us in a very impersonal sense with nature to what is supernatural to things that really do affect us very personally, illness and death. And in doing so, he's showing us, the readers, those who are listening, Jesus' divinity, his power, his authority, his, his ability to heal and reverse the effects of the fall. Now, the story is obviously a very long one. Um, I kind of regret choosing something so long. <laughs> but, um, and then there's two stories within it. That sort of sandwich in the middle of this story is the story of this woman. And ultimately, both of these stories are needed because this one that's sandwiched in the middle gives meaning, illumination, clarification to this larger story, this larger narrative that is happening. But this isn't just about how Mark wrote it, about how Mark understood it, but communicating truly what Jesus is doing. That it isn't just about physical healing, but it's, something, it's about something more. It's about what Jesus does in order to bring healing and restoration. And I love the quote that, uh, that we have here at the beginning of the bulletin from N.T. Wright. And I think it really gets to the heart of it. That Jesus didn't see healings as some kind of pre-modern traveling hospital. He wasn't healing the sick just for the sake of it, important though the healing itself was. Nor was he just a way of attracting people to listen to his message Rather, the healing was a dramatic sign of the message itself. God, the world's creator, was at work through him. To do what he had promised, to open blind eyes and deaf ears, to rescue people, to turn everything right side up. I love that, turning everything right side up. So in this passage, what we are going to consider is just kind of that need for everything to be made right side up again. We're going to be looking at, first, the need for healing. Second, the fear of healing. And finally, the healer we must have faith in. The need for healing, fear of healing, and the healer we must have faith in. Now, when we look at this text, the need for healing is very clear. We see it in the woman and we see it in the little girl. Now, when we read verse 26... You see, what happens with this woman? That she had suffered this condition for 12 years, suffered much under many physicians, spent all that she had and was no better, but grew worse. Could you imagine what this would have looked like for 12 years for this woman? First, it would have just meant that she was ceremonially unclean, that she couldn't go worship. She couldn't go into where the presence of God was, and meet her creator. But then we read that she spent all that she had on all these ineffective remedies, and not only just spent all of her money, but was no better, but worse. So she most likely ended up in a situation to where she was homeless. But not only was she just unclean to go into worship, she would have been unclean to others. That if anyone else came in contact with her, they themselves would have been made unclean and also would not have been able to go to worship until they did the prescripted cleansing rituals. And you could imagine then what the implications of this was. First, she was probably avoided, then eventually forgotten about, and finally just ostracized. And I think that's, that you could see that in this text because if all these reports of Jesus and his healings have gone out, where are her friends? Where is her family? Where is the community that are saying, listen to what Jesus is doing. Let, him, let me go get him for you. She had no one who would even go to Jesus for her. She is in a situation where she felt distance, rejected, defiled and alienated from friends, family, her community, and ultimately probably from the presence of God who felt at best distant, if not indifferent to her situation, where she was ultimately outside of her community. But then we get this contrast. We see now the condition not just of the woman, but now let's consider the little girl. At the very end of this passage we get this strange little detail Um, In verse 42, for she was 12 years of age. Now, that's not just an interesting detail, but I like it because it almost sets the setting for these healings over the course of 12 years. That for this woman who every year was almost losing more and more of her life, this little girl was gaining more and more of hers. We read that she is the daughter of the the synagogue's ruler, Jairus, and So we think about a pastor's kid. We know the special privileges and joy that a pastor's kid brings to a community, how everyone in the congregation knows them, celebrates them, watches them grow up. And we see that. We see this community just rallying around her. That father is going and waiting by the sea for Jesus to come. That even the disciples are on board and wanting to get the carrying bridge up and they get irritated with Jesus when he wants to figure out what's happening with this woman. That even as the scene is unfolding, then other people from the house are coming and saying, no, it's too late. And then when they get to the house, the house is just filled with people mourning, weeping, and wailing. The effects of fall, the effects of disease and death, are profound on a community. But it can become an amazing opportunity. This one theologian, Miroslav Volf, talks about it. He says that suffering was foundational for the Christian community and that it was suffering that brought both a community together and what brings that community to the cross of Christ, where the Son of God, Jesus himself, suffered. So what we have here is a contrast A contrast between a woman who lost church, lost friends, lost family, and lost community with a little girl who grew up in the church with all these friends, family, and community rallying around her. But what happened to the little girl? She did die. The final mark of the fall, death. Now, when we really step back and look at this text and really let it sink in, the need for healing is overwhelming. It's something that's personal. It's something that's physical. It's something that's communal. It's something that's emotional. It's something that's spiritual. And what is our most common response when we are faced with that kind of overwhelming sense and need of healing? Well, fear. Fear. And we see that in this text, too. Let's consider the, the, the woman first. Now, for her, this fear is when she is found out. In contrast to the father who's afraid of his daughter not being healed, this woman is afraid when she is healed. We read in verse 33 that after Jesus is looking for her, asking who touched me, that she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth could you imagine how terrifying of a situation that was for her? Imagine living in a situation where you are completely alone in isolation for 12 years. Then next thing you know, you are in the middle of this crowd and everyone is listening to you, looking at you, and you are telling them your story. And I think Jesus needed to do this for several reasons. I think first he needed to sort of correct, her, almost magic-like sort of superstition of uh, the healing. I mean, the woman said, if I just touch his garments, I will be made um, clean. And I think I missed that lecture in seminary where talked about the trousers of Jesus being just as good as Jesus. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre that you would even think that. But I think it goes further. I think Jesus needed to bring her back to the community, present her to the community, have her there, and see the community recognizing her healed, And being able to embrace her. And then to show what happens when Jesus comes in contact with what is unclean. Rather than Jesus being made unclean, he brings cleansing. And that's one of the things that I love about Jesus, about who he is. And I think it's one of those obstacles that we have, especially in our own lives, in our prayer life, that we think that either there's so much shame, defilement without us, that I can't go to Jesus, that he doesn't want to hear it. But that's not the case at all. And then further, I think he needs to do it to show Jairus the nature of faith so that he could show him how he will bring his little girl back to this community and how ultimately uncleanliness is no object to him. But it's not just fear in the woman. We also encounter it I think, in the Father. Now, the Father's role is interesting because he's probably one of the most central characters in this passage. Jesus, a handful of the the disciples, and then Jairus are the only people who are specifically named here. The woman isn't named. The little girl isn't named. But he is. And I think it's because we can relate well to the Father. We know what it's like to feel the hopelessness um, when healing needs to happen and brokenness with illness, especially with those who are so close to us, how we can feel so hurt and overwhelmed by it. Now, his fear is probably on account of the woman and the healing that is happening, this interruption, because you see the disciples and Jesus just making a beeline from the sea to the ruler's house but then this interruption happens. Now, this may surprise you guys, because I have the body of a neglected college student, but I spent some time in the military, and before our unit went overseas, um, I was trained as a combat lifesaver. So basic first aid is about yay, and combat medic was about here, uh, somewhere down here, where if I had to perform something, we probably really needed to rethink the situation we ended up in. But one of the things that they really drilled down into us was the need to really sort of do triage and understand pressing needs, urgent needs, very costly things that are happening with those that are less serious. So if someone rolled their ankle, not as serious as a gunshot wound or something like that. And when you see what is happening here with these two scenes, we see this little girl that is at the point of death but then this other woman who's just been struggling with something for 12 years. It seems like the most urgent need in this case is the little girl who is at the point of death. This woman will probably be fine for a couple more days, even. But Jesus stops, and he listens to her, and he heals her. And when all of this is unfolding, this little girl dies. So Jesus can't even be invited into this house. The whole house now is considered unclean. And I think that it's important that Jairus needed to see how this healing with this woman would happen, to see what happens when he comes in contact with things that are unclean. And what's encouraging is that ultimately we see here another contrast between the father who cannot save with the father who can save. It's not an accident that Jesus refers to this woman as a daughter. This term of endearment, that is probably one of the most special, intimate relationships in this world, is between a father and a daughter. And this woman, who has been alienated, outcast, outside of the community for 12 years, has Jesus look at her and call her his daughter. Jairus needed to see that. We needed to see that. That as we are unfolding this, we need to see the true healing Father and what he does to make this world right side up. And that is where we need to put our faith. That's why Jesus commands Jairus, do not fear, only believe, have faith. And that is the proper response that we need to have to fear. Faith. Jesus talks about the faith of the woman. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And the commands, gives the imperative to Jairus to have faith. Now, this faith, what is it? I love the Northwest and how bizarre it is. Just the other week, I was talking to a guy at a coffee shop and started talking about spiritual things. And he ultimately ended up just saying, you know, I just have faith in faith. I have no idea what that means. And that's not what the Bible teaches either. It's not some abstract thing. It's not something that is just a faith in faith. What faith is, and I love how our, uh, our catechism puts it, it's a receiving and resting in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we, rest, that we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us. It's not abstract. It's not impersonal. The nature of faith is to receive something. We are saved by what faith receives. Now, um, I think a good example of this is like car keys. If all I have is car keys, they really do me no good. I could travel around just as fast as if I don't have them. But if I use those car keys, if those car keys do what they are meant to do, be put into the car and receive that And then I could go fast with that. And that's what faith does. Faith allows us to receive and rest Jesus in his work. Now, what I love here about this passage is kind of what it tells us about faith. Just like the woman, our faith may not be perfect. It could be defiled and have a whole bunch of sinful impulses and misconceptions behind it. But what makes faith and how Christianity talks about faith and faith in Jesus so beautiful is that despite how imperfect and lacking our faith may be, the object of our faith is absolutely perfect. And that's what Jesus is telling Jairus here and commanding him to believe. You, he's telling him, you came to me in faith. You were having faith. Do not stop believing me. Look at who I am and how I interact with those that are alienated, ostracized from the community. I will do that for those who are celebrated within the community as well. And that's what I love about Jesus, is that we see not only that he has this heart to engage and make things right and make things right side up again, but we see how he does that. How does he heal? Well, let's consider how he does it first for the woman. In verses 28 through 30, this is what we read. For She said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd. We see this transaction occurring. Jesus lost power so that this woman could receive healing power. And it's this, it's this type of sacrificial, self-giving love that characterizes Jesus' ministry and ultimately culminates and climaxes at the cross. For example, we talked about this woman that she lived years rejected, defiled, and outside of her community. What the author of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus himself suffered outside of the gates, outside of his community, in order to sanctify the people through his blood. He bore the ultimate curse of rejection, Alienation, defilement outside of the community, so that we could be accepted, made clean, and brought back into relationship and communion with our God and Maker. But it's not just for this woman, we also see it for this little girl. Let's reread verses 39 through 42. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kume, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Jesus says that this little girl is just sleeping. Everyone else says she's dead. But then what's interesting is in the other Gospels, it also says that she is dead. So is Mark wrong? Is Jesus wrong? I don't think so. I think what Jesus is doing is instructing us and making a point to us about the nature of death. That just as Jesus used this term of endearment with this woman calling her daughter, he uses another term of endearment with this little girl. Now, it's, it's sometimes hard because we are reading an English translation, of a Greek translation of an Aramaic expression. So um, things sometimes get lost. But what he's doing ultimately... And every dad knows how special this is. He's sitting down next to her on bed, taking her by the hand, saying, honey, it's time to get up. This one pastor says, Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. There's nothing more frightening for a little child than to lose the hand of a parent in a crowd or in the dark. But that is nothing compared to Jesus' own loss. He lost his Father's hand on the cross. He went into the tomb so we could be raised out of it. He lost hold of his Father's hand so that we can know that once he has us by his hand, he will never, ever forsake us. And that's the hope that we have. That's the Christian hope in the fallenness of this world. We know that in a context, in a beautiful but broken world, Where there is chaos of nature, supernatural forces, chronic illness, tragedy, and even death, death is not the end of it. We know that all these things are real, painful, and hard, and they burden us, and they bring us to tears many times. But we see the love of our true Father, our Heavenly Father, the true healer who brings us to himself, accepts us, saves us, and brings us through the most painful illness in the darkest nights of death to a dawn full of restoration and light. Who himself experienced the full weight of these things within history so that we could be assured of an eternity without them. And that is the good news. That is the hope of the gospel. That is what we receive and rest in in Christ. That we don't earn this. We don't earn this reconciliation. We don't earn anything. All we do is we receive it. We rest in it we rest in the true healer who affirms the truest need of healing in our relationships, in our community, in this beautiful but broken world. But that we don't need to fear or be afraid because death is conquered, defeated, and overcome in Christ's resurrection even. And that's what we look forward to. And for us, we know it's nothing more than just mere sleep. And that's the type of Savior we accept, receive, and rest in. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text that you have given us. For the ways that you have worked in this world. For the ways you bring healing. For the way that you hear our hearts. You hear our pain. You hear how much we just long for the total restoration of all things. And that you are doing that through the personal work of your son, Jesus Christ. Have these truths sink into our lives, sink into our communities, sink into our relationships, that we can continually experience the joy of restoration that you are doing. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.